Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Now, if you're interested in developing a habit of reading classic books by authors like Homer, Nietzsche, Cicero, Spinoza and many more, then go to my website www.mythandhistory.co.uk. There you will see a link to Intellectual Linear Progression. Intellectual Linear Progression is designed to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books. Weekly reading goals, reminders, accountability tools and a dedicated community of fellow readers help keep you on track and on schedule with your reading. The check-in and reading goal system is designed to help you progress through the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month, Intellectual Linear Progression ships you a carefully selected edition of one of the great books directly to your home. They begin with Homer and progress through works by Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare and through to the moderns. Each month you'll meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss your text with a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. So, go to www.mythandhistory.co.uk If you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the great books, go there and enter the promo code MYTH to get 25% off your first three months. I really do hope you go. It's a fantastic deal. Okay, on with the show. The Myths and History of Greece and Rome, Chapter 138. One Empire, Two Empires, Three Empires, Four Empires. Okay, are you sitting comfortably? If not, get comfortable now. This chapter is going to be a rough ride, a roller coaster of emperors, empires, battles, agreements and disagreements, treaties, breaking of treaties, blindings and death. In it, we will meet around 20 people who called themselves emperor and at least four different empires, each of which thought of themselves as the real Roman Empire. To us, though, there's only one real empire, and it is the leaders of this empire who will eventually end up in charge. OK, here we go, introducing Empire One. The crusading armies took Constantinople and immediately put into action their plan. The Committee of Twelve, Six Franks and Six Venetians, elected Baldwin of Flanders as Emperor of Constantinople, and he was given a quarter of the empire as his own land. The Venetians received one quarter of the city and three-eighths of the rest of the empire, and the Franks received the other three-eighths. Boniface of Montferrat was very, very unhappy about the election of the emperor, as he had expected to get the job himself. He demanded to be given the city of Thessalonica and the lands around it. After a few arguments, battles, sulks and other stuff, he was given the city. Enrico Dandolo was delighted with the whole thing, of course. He was so old, though he didn't have too long to enjoy it. The Great Doge died in June 1205. He was a quite remarkable 97 years old. Nobody had inflicted more damage on the ancient empire of Rome than he had. So, is this the real empire that will come out on top? Well, we'll see. Alright, on we go, introducing Empire 2. Before it was known that Constantinople had fallen, two grandsons of Andronicus Comnenus were rebelling in the city of Trebizond. They really took their chance in the months after the city had fallen into hands of the Latins. Pretty soon, Alexius and David Comnenus had taken a large strip of land on the south coast of the Black Sea. So, is this the real empire that will come out on top? Well, again, you'll have to wait and see. Okay, introducing Empire 3. It is said that on the day before the Greeks fled from Constantinople, the Patriarch crowned a man called Theodore Lascaris as Emperor. Lascaris set himself up in the city of Nicaea and became the Emperor of Nicaea. 
he soon managed to take control of most of the western half of Asia Minor. The Patriarch of Constantinople also moved to Nicaea, and Theodore was crowned again in the city in 1208. So is this the empire that will come out on top? Well, we will see. Right, introducing Empire IV. The western coast of Greece and part of Thessaly was seized by John Angelicus Ducus Comnenus. This man seemed to be quite definite emperor material. After all, he had the blood of three previous dynasties in him. Why he chose to be associated with the Angeli is not clear. Surely nobody would want people to know he was related to that lot. John Angelus Ducus Comnenus became known as the despot of Epirus. So is this the real empire that will come out on top? We shall see. It would be nice to tell the stories of these four empires separately, but this is, sadly, not possible. The futures of each are so linked together we will have to tell the complicated story in one go. The Latin Empire was doomed from the start. It must be remembered that the Crusaders were supposed to go to the Holy Land and liberate Jerusalem. They appear to have forgotten about this completely, and so the Fourth Crusade has to go down in history as one of the biggest and most tragic blunders of all time. It had only succeeded in bringing down the largest Christian empire in the East, and making the chances of ever getting back into Jerusalem virtually disappear. The Pope excommunicated the whole crusade yet again, saying he wanted nothing to do with these swords that drip with Christian blood. Various crusaders set out from the ancient capital city and made their homes in bits of the old empire. Some of them went home to Europe. Soon afterwards, the crusaders decided, for reasons best known to themselves, to march against the Bulgarians. This was a remarkably stupid idea, and the crusaders were heavily defeated. Bolden was taken prisoner and probably died soon afterwards. His brother Henry took his place as Emperor of Constantinople. Henry was occupied with the Bulgarian campaigns for another two years. In Nicaea, Theodore Lascaris raised a smile. He was determined to get Constantinople back, and the Latins suffering a big defeat was a very good thing. He was much more worried about the Turks of Iconium. By 1211, though, he was reasonably secure in his territory. He'd also managed to capture the very annoying Alexius III and send him to a monastery. The emperor was a strong and clever man, and he managed his little empire very well. The people trusted him, and he didn't let them down. The Latin Empire of Constantinople was now in charge of not much more than the city itself, a largest bit of Thrace and Thessalonica and the lands around it. In 1211, the Latins stopped thinking they could be in charge of the whole empire and agreed a treaty with Theodore Lascaris. Lascaris, of course, had no intention of respecting the treaty if his forces became strong enough to take back the capital. The new despot of Epirus, Theodore Angelus Ducus Comnenus, had succeeded his father in the 1210s. Boniface of Monferrat had been killed in 1207, and so Theodore took his chance to attempt the recapture of Thessalonica. It took many, many years to finish the job, but by 1224, the second city of the old empire was back in Greek hands. The Latin Empire of Constantinople got a bit smaller once again. Theodore Angelus Ducus Comnenus had himself crowned Emperor of the Romans, which meant that he was now challenging the rule of Theodore Lascaris, who thought of himself as the real emperor. Not that this mattered to Theodore Lascaris, though, as he died in 1222. He was succeeded by his son-in-law, a man called John III, Ducus Vitazes. Lascaris had achieved more than anyone thought possible in 1204. He had created a stable, if small, empire, and made his people believe that one day they may be able to take back their old capital. He'd been emperor for 17 years, and was about 47 years old when he died. 
John Vertazzi's was to prove a worthy successor and would achieve even more. Okay, back to the Latin Empire. Blimey, this really is complicated. After a couple of weak rulers, a man called John of Brienne became emperor in 1231. John was in his 80s, but was probably the strongest ruler the Latin Empire of Constantinople would know. There was trouble in the start of his reign because Theodore Angelus Ducus Comnenus had concluded an agreement with John II Azen, Tsar of the Bulgarians. Unfortunately, John then agreed a treaty with the Latins, where he offered to help take back the city of Thessalonica. This was all too much for Theodore Angelus Ducus Comnenus, and he decided the Bulgars would have to be destroyed. In April 1230, he marched on Bulgaria. His army was horribly defeated, and the despotate of Epirus was dramatically weakened. Theodore himself was taken prisoner. His brother Manuel was allowed to stay on in Thessalonica, but had to marry John Azen's daughter. Most of the despotate of Epirus was eventually in Bulgar hands. Theodore Angelus Ducus Comnenus was blinded and remained a prisoner of the Bulgars for many years. I hope you're following this. I'm not sure I am. So, the Latin Empire, far from being threatened by the despot of Epirus allying with the Bulgars, had been saved when they'd fought each other. Their happiness didn't last long, though, because John Azen launched an unexpected campaign into Thrace. He then made an alliance with John Vatatzes, Emperor of Nicaea. Suddenly, the Latin Empire was under threat again. By 1235, the combined force of the Bulgars and the Nicaeans was under the walls of Constantinople. John of Brienne raised an army and fought bravely. There was clearly no hope for the Latin Empire, until suddenly John Azen realised he was much better off with a weak Latin Empire as his neighbour than a strong Nicaean Empire. Venetian ships and Frankish soldiers fought and fought, until they thought the end was in sight, but the Bulgars suddenly changed sides and joined with the Latins in besieging a Nicaean stronghold in Thrace. It seemed like the tide was about to turn. Turn, though, it didn't. The Bulgar army and the Tsar's own wife were struck down by the plague, and John Azen decided this meant God was not approving of his siege. He immediately withdrew and made peace with a smiling John Vatatzes. He never gave the Nicaean emperor any more trouble. Amazingly, Theodore Angelus Ducus Comnenus, still a prisoner of the Bulgars, managed to persuade the Bulgar Tsar to marry his daughter, and the blind old leader of Thessalonica was released and returned to the city. He deposed his brother Manuel and placed his son John on the throne. It's not getting any less complicated, is it? 1241 was the year the complicated situation began to sort itself out. It was the year in which a new people from the far interior of Asia made their mark on the old imperial provinces. The Mongols swept in from the east and inflicted heavy defeats on both the Turks of Iconium and the Bulgars. This removed two of the most powerful enemies of the Empire of Nicaea. The only enemies left were the weak despot of Epirus, which was once again independent from Thessalonica, the very weak Thessalonica itself, and the very, very weak Latin Empire of Constantinople. John Vatatzes grinned a wide grin and planned his next move. John Vatatzes was an even better ruler than Theodore Lascaris had been. He had one of the most important qualities that great leaders had. He was able to look at a situation and work out how to play it so he got the best result in the end. He didn't try to get everything he wanted in one go. In 1241, he made his move against Thessalonica. He had realised that Angelus Ducus Comnenus was a weak but nice man, and it was still his blind father who really had the power. He invited Theodore for discussions in Nicaea. 
Theodore was given the welcome that a great man should expect, and treated beautifully. When it was time to go home, though, he was politely informed he was now a prisoner and would not actually be going home any time soon. By the time he was allowed to return to Thessalonica, he had agreed to recognise John Vatatzes as the rightful emperor, and that John Angelus Ducus Comnenus would only be in charge of Thessalonica as John Vatatzes' representative. So, still complicated and still four emperors, although it's now very clear which one's going to come out on top. John Vatatzes had Thessalonica under control, and he now turned his attention to the Bulgars. He soon defeated them and took back most of the Balkans. The people of Thessalonica realised he was too strong and offered him the city and its lands backed as full provinces of his empire. In December 1246, he marched into the city, and the city was his. Blind Theodore Angelus Ducus Comnenus, though, was not finished. In 1249, he persuaded despot Michael II to renounce the treaty and raise an army against Nicaea. John Vatatzes had had enough. He raised the largest army he could find and marched into Epirus. The show of force was enough. Michael II was forced into a treaty whereby he recognised that he ruled his territories in friendship with John and agreed that John's granddaughter would marry the despot's son. The Empire of Nicaea was now as powerful as it could be without regaining Constantinople itself. Theodore Angelus Ducus Comnenus was finally thrown into prison, where he died a little while later. It has to be said that he deserved it. Only the Latin Empire and a small Epirus remained. John Vatatzes, though, was, as always, looking ahead. He could probably have marched into the old capital and taken it, but the last thing he wanted was a crusade coming to take it back. He began talks with the Pope, hoping he, he could persuade the holy man to give him the city. John Brienne was dead by this time, and the Emperor of Constantinople was now a young man called Baldwin II. Baldwin was not too fond of the ancient capital, and he spent most of his time as far away from it as possible. The city and the tiny empire was running out of money, and Baldwin visited the kings of Europe to raise funds. He wasn't very successful, and by the time he came back to the great city in 1248, there was not much left to save. He was soon selling the lead from the roof of the imperial palace to keep any money in the treasury at all. John Vatatzes was still not happy to take the city by force. The last thing he wanted was another crusade coming his way. He was still expecting the Pope to give him his capital peacefully when he died unexpectedly in 1254. John III had been a brilliant ruler. He had raised the empire of Nicaea from a small but strong fragment of the old Roman Empire to being the strongest power in the region. The people loved him and his only failure had been that Constantinople itself was still in Latin hands. He was about 62 years old when he died, and had been emperor for 33 years. He had managed to make the empire of Nicaea the real empire, which would, eventually, come out on top. He'd also created a situation in which art, science and culture were allowed to thrive. He was deeply loved by the people of his empire, and not long after he died, his dream of a return to Constantinople would come true. Quite soon after his death, he was made a saint under the name John the Merciful. Oh... I think I need a breather. It's all a bit hectic. By the time John Vatatzes died, the Latin Empire was wobbling so much it was bound to fall before long. John could probably have taken it if he hadn't waited for the Pope to agree. John's son Theodore inherited the throne and was crowned Theodore II Lascaris. He was as hard-working as his father, but he also suffered from epilepsy, which was to kill him before he had a chance to retake Constantinople. He proved himself to be, though, another very good ruler. 
he led a number of campaigns against the Bulgars, who had recovered just a bit from their dealings with the Mongols. Theodore, though, was not remotely interested in joining the Orthodox Church with the Church of Rome. He had stopped wanting the Pope's permission to retake his capital. Unfortunately, Theodore II upset the despot of Epirus after demanding a little too much territory in exchange for the marriage between his sister and the despot's son. Pretty soon, Macedonia was up in arms against him. In order to calm the situation, he sent his best general, a young man called Michael Paleologus, to defeat the rebels. The army was not strong enough, though, and soon the opposing army was at the gates of Thessalonica. Michael retreated and was thrown into prison for failing to defeat the Epirans. Theodore II Lascaris was only 36 when his disease killed him. He had shown all the signs in his four-year reign that he could have ruled well for longer, but he never had the chance. He was succeeded by his son John IV, who was just 12. Appointed as regent was a man named George Musalon, who was hated by almost everyone. Musalon was murdered just nine days later. The murderers liberated Michael Paleologus from his prison and declared him to be the new regent. Michael Paleologus was the best general of his age. He was also likely to be a good emperor. There was not much in his way, and it wasn't long before he took his chance. In 1258, he declared himself co-emperor. In 1258, there were still four empires. By 1261, though, although the empire of Trebizond and the despot of Epirus both continued to exist in a small way, there would really only be one. And next time, we'll find out exactly how that happened. Next time, I'm afraid, is going to be in four weeks' time, as I've got a couple of busy weekends coming on. But the next episode will be a cheerful one. So please listen in, and I'll speak to you next time.